from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Firstly, ladies and gents, it's lovely to see you. So many of you are on a Tuesday evening. Um, it's quite daunting, actually, trying to talk on this particular topic when, in fact, I look across and there are so many of you who know so much more than I about it. Uh, however, I hope that uh, you will recognise some of the aspects I speak of and I certainly hope to be able to answer any questions at the end. Um, I'd also like to thank the Aeronautical Society for inviting me. Uh, Sir Thomas Sopworth was an amazing character, uh, lived to the ripe age of 101 years old. And it's actually when you look at back at the background of individuals such as this, how come could anybody be so accomplished? Um, and in fact, you know, the little known fact, perhaps, or indeed maybe you all, all are aware, uh, but he actually picked up uh, ice hockey. And in 1910, um, he actually got a gold medal uh, for winning, with Great Britain, the European Championships. Um, this was at the same time, as far as I can work out, and there's a slide which will indicate it later, where he's actually designing an aircraft approximately about every fortnight, I should think, actually, for the number of aircraft that he actually had a part to play in. Um, it's of added uh, pickance to be here for the 150th anniversary uh, of our society, and I would uh, stick my neck out uh, and say a natural institution for the Royal Air Force. Uh, so I'm very grateful uh, to have been asked to uh, speak. Uh, that's the topic uh, you've seen already, and as I say, thank you very much indeed for all coming along. The scope, um, a little about defence support and equipment. I'm really going to gloss over that quite quickly. Uh, one never know quite what the audience is, and in fact, from what I can see, I really can get past that bit quite quickly. Um, looking back at contracting for availability, we talk about it as if, in fact, we've been doing it forever. In reality, we've only been doing it for about 13 years. And indeed, as far as change programmes are concerned, the very fact that it's now trips off our tongue from an aircraft environment, I think, says a lot for how, how successful it has been and our working much more closely and collaboratively with industry has gone. However, I would like to look at some of the behaviours with regard to the bad and the good. Uh, we'll actually look at some theoretical work that I did a few years ago in terms of trying to work out what good practice actually looks like in this field, and then we'll look at today and futures relationships. So the DNS, um, that is what we do. We are the people who largely have been in the past pilloried by being over budget and over time on delivering uh, large projects and programmes uh, for Her Majesty's Government. Um, I think that is starting to go away. Uh, however, throughout all of that, to equip and support our armed forces for operations now in the future remains our strapline. Uh, if you've not been, uh, and in fact there are fewer people who come because it's really hard to park at Abbey Wood these days, <laughs> as I was only reminded last week by industry colleagues... Uh, what is it that we do? We are the lead department for commercial activity um, and we are now very clearly the organisation that manages the interface between industry and truly the front line. Uh, and indeed I think I'll come up, we'll mention it again, but uh, Lord Levine's recommendations uh, I personally think are hugely 
uh, have been very successful indeed and place responsibility for looking forward at capability requirements and then stating them very clearly as a single customer um, in the way that Air Command is now able to do to us is uh, absolutely the way to go. Uh, one only looks back in some respects and say perhaps that organisation could have been more forceful in the past, but I fully appreciate that it was difficult to do so at times with an MOD in between. Our organisation, um, this, this is what we are. This is uh, four particular legs um, in terms of delivery. I clearly have got the light blue one and we'll come to the portfolio in a minute. The delivery and the functions, though, however, allude to the transformation that's ongoing within the DNS, uh, where we are adopting what seemingly every other large organisation undertaking project and programme management does in the world, which is actually do so from a balanced matrix uh, way. Um, we've tried pretty much everything else to get better, and as far as I can see, this is the last one to go. So it's got to be worth a try, hasn't it? Uh, the budget is still quite scary. Um, it does seem like monopoly money to me at times. And I say that, in fact, as I'm sure many of you have interests outside of our workplace. Uh, I'm a governor at uh, Bath College, and actually, just in terms of some of the loose change from this, uh, the college could be so much better equipped in terms of IT. Uh, and so I do think that we just have, uh, we do need to recognise that the number, of, the amount of money that we are spending, and at times why we are viewed as so overly bureaucratic, is this is taxpayers' money, and that we do have to uh, own up to indeed what it is we've done with it. Now, interestingly, again, for the organisation, it's very easy to get swept away with the bright, shiny new toys and the new capabilities, but ultimately, far more money is actually spent in support than indeed in terms of new equipment. And for this year only, um, Air Domain, uh, the budget that I'm responsible for spending, it's not my money, it's Air Command's money, 62% of this year's budget is actually on support. Uh, and that is quite notable. So that's the Air Domain portfolio, pretty much everything that's fixed wing. Uh, there are a couple of aircraft that sit outside this uh, for historic reasons and bureauc bureaucratic reasons. Um, uh, a fixed-wing type sitting outside in the DNS within my old area, di uh, director helicopters. Um, I've put a bid in for them, and I hope to have them uh, by Christmas. And so what that means is that we will have all of the fixed-wing aircraft, and most importantly, all of those of an I-star nature. Uh, because, again, as we look forward in terms of how we can track for things, it's very easy to think about the aircraft as the final product. The reality is it's a full mission capability that we're trying to put airborne. And sometimes, actually, the aircraft in which it is in is ultimately very boring. Um, it's the kit that it carries, it's the customers that it has, and clearly the service that's provided uh, for our operational commanders. So if I look back at the backdrop of transformation uh, and turning the clock back uh, some 15, 16 years, uh, there was a massive drive for greater levels of efficiency, and that's in fact the, uh, the things which many of you will recognise and, and some had a very strong part to play in uh, with regard to smart acquisition and the 20% savings that we had to deliver in terms of costs in the DLO. Transformation staircase was something very simple. It basically said to improve what you need to do is let spares inclusive contracts and the next step is you'll have a contract for availability. The reality is nobody really knew what that meant. 
Uh, and in reality, the contracts even now, when we reflect back on every single aircraft having one, they are all still very different. We are still evolving in terms of trying to understand best practice and move to a, a regime where we truly are adapting the contractual arrangement for the optimum requirement for the operational commander. And we're not there yet. But the reality is when we look through that list, however old it is, it kind of looks vaguely very familiar to now, as does the list on the right-hand side, which were, you could argue, the operational commander's requirements for doing something. Similar lessons were being learned from multiple operations. We weren't quite delivering everything that was required. There was an urgent need to improve. Uh, there was a need to find efficiencies. And the nature of operations changed. And if you look hard enough, you can find most of those things written down in SDSR 2015. So in some respects, whilst this list um, is some years old, the reality is nothing very much has changed to, in, to today's in, environment in which we work. It's great to see John Dowdy here. Uh, who worked and was one of the principal um, authors of the end-to-end -end review of air and land logistics in 2003. Without a doubt, a landmark uh, report. Uh, I had a short tour from Cosford as a station commander. I only did a year and 13 days, I'm not counting, uh, to be promoted and to lead the implementation of this. Uh, in very simple terms, this report was that that catalyzed contracting for availability. It had been talked about before, but nobody really knew how to do it properly because you couldn't get your arms around the organization that you wanted to contract. We had four lines of maintenance. None of them actually spoke to each other, by and large. I'm exaggerating for effect, but not much. And each was fiercely independent, and it was quite hard to try and see how you could let a contract that not only bridged those four lines, but also bridged those four lines over six, seven, eight, nine, ten locations scattered across the UK. So what we did uh, with the recommendation was go to two levels, forward and depth. Uh, forward was the front line and everything in depth, which by and large was about halfway through second line and everything behind it, would fall into depth and what we would end up doing was contracting for depth, which exactly as you know. Creating single depth hubs uh, sometimes on main operating bases, sometimes back at uh, industry locations. The very best and the most complicated were those which we put onto main operating bases. Uh, and I think the reason that I, and the one that I was always most in favour of. The reason being is if indeed, uh, we heard a lot about me being an engineer, a lot of engineers in the audience. Uh, what we really need uh, of a, to have flexibility as an engineer to fix aircraft is skills. And if, in fact, you divorce from where you're doing depth engineering from the skill set, the people, actually you're going to find, suddenly you find you've got people with no skills. Um, and I could argue that perhaps is what's happened to the Royal Navy right now uh, with regard to the problems that they are facing. So those that were best were Tornado at Marham and Harrier at Cottesmore. Contracting for availability, and indeed, whilst the first contract for availability, if I recall rightly, was Skios, uh, was the seeking interoperate integrated operational support contract, uh, Tornado Attack Phase 1 and Rocket for Engines uh, was very soon behind. And again, uh, there are people in the audience who know far more about that and lived the dream than I did. Reliable and consistent supply chain, again, a huge amount of work was done in terms of leaning that out, and that comes very much to the application of lean techniques. Uh, and I'll come to that as a moment, particularly perhaps with regard to potentially the bad behaviours that came from that. Uh, but certainly what was left as a result of that particular work and its implementation was definitely a good knowledge of lean in all of its types, whether physical or indeed theoretical, 
and a migration towards wanting to do more and indeed needing to do more. There was a level of expectation that needed to be met. The National Audit Office report um, in 2007, Transforming Logistics Support for Fast Jets. This is the organisation that often pillories uh, the likes of the DLO and the DNS these days for doing so very badly. But in 2007, it said those words. It said it actually confirmed that cumulative savings of some £1.4 billion had been achieved over a six-year period. And there are many people in this room from many of your companies that contributed to that. And indeed, the transformation of logistics support represented good value for money. Uh, again, this is the organisation that normally shreds careers, not actually says that someone is doing quite well. So this was a large success in the early days. Um, I'm not sure this graph has ever seen the light of day since uh, 2011. I think when I wrote it, for, did it for the first time. But actually, out of the effort that went into meeting a run rate of about £921 million, of uh, savings and efficiencies in the air domain, um, th the truth was 87% of that came from our increased um, link with industry. Only 13% came from the blood and misery that existed of leaning in the front line and actually bringing out about 2,000 people in that process for which there was no loss of capability. But I think, again, if we really look back, that graph says it all. The bottom line is if you want to achieve further efficiencies in support, it's pretty obvious where you're going to look. Uh, and, the, so, and that's what it says. And indeed, the most likely thing is, is enhancing those industry relationships. However, if we look at the bad, and whilst indeed I worked hard at the tents on this to try and almost make it look as if I was reflecting on the past, I think in reality I'm also reflecting on the here and now. So there is a pressure to deliver benefits, it's ongoing. Uh, financial resources are squeezed ever harder. So whilst in fact uh, SDSR 2015 has been a massive success for the Royal Air Force, uh, for the first time since 1990 we're actually going to grow in numbers of people and in fact we're going to even have two additional aircraft types, uh, some OSDs which have moved off to the right for some very sensible capabilities to do with ISTAR and we're even getting two additional Typhoon squadrons thrown in. Fantastic. Catastrophic success is the way that it is, can be described in the Royal Air Force because not only can we do all those things, and we can, we've been permissioned to do it, but we've actually got to achieve the efficiencies to be able to pay for an awful lot of it. So in terms of that continual improvement and lean applications, there's plenty more for us to do. However, lean was a four-letter word. Uh, and truly was a four-letter word in the mid-2000s. Uh, it was considered by many that had it done to them as just about cuts. The forward depth construct, now 12 years old, uh, could have, and it was applied differently by each particular force, uh, I would argue now was sometimes done suboptimally, um, and we have not utilised our RAF tradesmen as well as we could have done in depth. And skill fade is definitely something that we're living with as a real threat. Lean working, without a doubt, in terms of trying to iron out the requirement down to the uh, infinitesimal degree, certainly does constrain flexibility. There is no doubt about that. Uh, the contracts and incentives that we have let since those early days all differ. Uh, we're not quite so good as learning as many lessons as indeed we should be. Uh, stovepipes do remain, um, and as I say, we, we don't always apply good practice. 
And of course, throughout all of that, the priority, as ever, is our support to operations. However, what is the good? I've already given the number, £921 million run rate by the time we got to the end of 2011, and there were no forces lost from the meeting of transformation targets. I remember counting seven tornado squadrons when we started, and I counted seven tornado squadrons when we finished. And that was the measure of how you can take 2,000 people out from the Royal Air Force uh, by applying lean techniques. It did mean not everyone enjoyed the process. It was bloody on occasions, and I mean literally bloody on occasions. However, it was a huge achievement. And the reality is we did something that nobody had done before and most importantly kept the capability that we all, that inspired us all to do it. Industry-led depth support hubs were established. Uh, we achieved economies of scale, uh, six locations for Tornado down into one. Formal lean training was put in place and has, in fact, uh, still alive and well. Uh, so unsurprisingly, it's really alive and well at Odium, at Marham and at Lossiemouth, three of the locations that really had to deliver some of the most greatest efficiency in the early days. Industry partners are embedded into our support arrangements. There's absolutely no way that we could do it now without industry. Um, and it definitely has reduced uh, the downtime of maintenance. Uh, if I recall rightly, back when I was managing Harrier in the old days, I was trying to manage and juggle 300 varying supply contracts. Uh, by the time the Harrier went out of service, and in fact long before then, there were two. One for the platform, one for the engine, and it kind of worked. And that made life uh, for us inside so much easier. Also conducted some uh, review. I went through personally hundreds in a previous life for a previous reason of frontline and operational lessons. And contracting for availability almost featured not at all um, as any comment whatsoever. And if you really looked hard at those areas where indeed contractors were in theatre in many instances, there was not a specific adverse comment made at all. So what indeed we did, arguably, from looking through those lessons, has had no adverse impact on operations. Uh, let's go back to uh, Sir Thomas Sopworth and a bit of audience participation, as it were. I've already mentioned the fact that he uh, designed many, many aircraft, but you know, what's the one you all kind of remember? Account, right. So that's also the name of a psychedelic band in San Francisco uh, in the 1970s. 5,490 of those were built. The first one flew on the 22nd of December 16, and to then, till the end of the war, camel pilots were credited with shooting down 1,294 aircraft. Absolutely unbelievable. But in fact, that is just but a smattering of the aircraft that he had a very strong part to play with his company from uh, 1912 through to 1920, when the Sopwith Grasshopper, and the names are just wonderful, aren't they, uh, actually achieved its uh, certification of airworthiness in 1920. So the camel was in the middle. So what we see here, and if we look at the, t the picture in the top right, that is a Sopworth camel or a cartoon, a drawing of it, pretty much most of those aircraft look like it, but they all had very different specific parts. Some were two seats, some were one seat, some had different engine, some had more guns, some had less guns. Some of them were actually being downward under airships. And some of them were actually taking off of ships as well. 
So when we look at the multiple types of contract for availability, the reality is there are multiple types. We couldn't even get the names the same. But the reality is they all actually are very similar to the Sopworth brand, as it were. They were all contracts for availability, but every single one of them is different. And I'll return to those a little later. I talked about evidence of uh, carrying out uh, some analysis. Um, if we looked at some work I did about five, six years ago now, was to look through a whole bunch of documents on the right hand, left-hand side, and on the right-hand side was those findings in summary terms. And the issue was it wasn't just as simple as saying contracting for availability. For as much as I have argued that wouldn't it be good if we could learn the lessons from the past and apply them in a more common fashion, the reality is the context, the type of aircraft, the mission they have, the number you've got of them, five sentinel are, is a strategic asset. Uh, so is a hundred odd typhoon, but you would contract for them differently because taking one or two out does not have the same shift on Sentinel as it would on Typhoon. Focusing on better governance, um, and again, we are historically very good at letting contracts in the DNS, I think, increasingly so. Um, I'd like to think we are increasingly better at actually managing those contracts, uh, but we're not as good as indeed uh, we could and should be. Um, we do need coherence in the deployed space, and this is indeed where it comes back to trying to get better, better governance. Uh, and indeed, it's when you see a number of aircraft from the same location, all in theatre, each with their own ground crew, each with their own ground equipment, and each with their own transport and ways of doing things, you kind of look at this thing and go, this can't be right. So there are some things that we can gain, and clearly the earliest engagement delivers the better support solutions. No great surprise there. A piece of work that I did also looked at uh, industry best practice and uh, a number of questionnaires and a number of uh, interviews followed with um, oil and gas, in fact, was BP, Rio Tinto was the mining industry, uh, BT was the telecom industry, and the BAA and the building Terminal 5 was the civil engineering project. Each of those, I would argue, are very similar to what it is that we're trying to do, a very complex program and project management world where, in fact, short notice requirements can often drive an outcome. So you need to have a degree of flexibility. Well, the evidence of the distillation of that, and that the, the questions on the left-hand side, as you, as you see it, were those in terms of specifically around the questionnaires and specifically around the interviews. And the findings are surprisingly and pleasingly similar to those from the paperwork analysis of internal work within the MOD. Uh, however, I will pick out... Uh, so central control of support requirements is paramount, and I think that's the better governance. So it does talk about better governance at the end. Successful support is best built in at the beginning. Funny old thing, that, isn't it? Um, ILS was a wonderful idea in 1965. We seem to have adopted, binned it in 1966. My words. But support based on trust and partnership with suppliers is the one that I'd like to pick out most. Uh, this is something that was being done on as a matter of course within the best companies elsewhere in business very similar to our own. And indeed, I would say, again, the evidence that I put forward to you now is kind of where we are. So today's support solution, I think the relationship between the DNS and industry has stabilised. Uh, it's almost, you can't find 
an aircraft that doesn't have some form of contract for availability. Um, the very fact that we've only been doing this for 13 years, and by and large we let contracts for four, five, sometimes ten years ago, means that we still are evolving, I would argue, in terms of how we go about this in a proper way. Um, but the post-Levine relationship, again, I mentioned earlier, the relationship between the DNS and Air Command is still in very much in work. Uh, it's great to see Malcolm here. Uh, he and I are following around each other. We both were speaking at the Staff College today. Uh, again, me doing the DNS bit and him doing how it's going. Uh, but the reality is it's hard work to work with your customers and to try and influence something that when you, all you really want to do is the bright, shiny toy, and actually we know that two-thirds of the overall cost of every project pretty much comes in support, how you've really got to focus on that at the beginning. Um, and I'll, it's, uh, I'll come back to a bullet or so in a moment. So we, I think we have developed ideas where the analyses of perspectives one and two match in the way that I've described, and increasingly tailored contracts uh, are on proven good practice um, and, in fact, it's really heartening uh, the legacy that uh, Sir Simon Bollum has given the air domain is where you talk to people about contracts and, indeed, you hear back from the project and program teams that, in fact, they have been outside of their immediate stovepipe and are increasingly speaking to others in terms of what are the best KPIs, what are the second and third order um, outcomes of those KPIs having gone wrong and what is it that we can actually do to try and either simplify them or make them more complicated. And in many instances you almost need to do both. Um, again, when I look back at the relationship between the DNS and perhaps look more towards the future, uh, the reality is those days when we let contracts and thought that actually, and how many of you have heard the words, maybe some of you have even spoken them, that in fact, if you've actually got to, go, got to get the contract out and look at the sub-paras, sub then you've actually broken your relationship. I would say absolutely the opposite is true. Every single individual needs to know the contract that they are a part in delivering, like rote, as it were, and put it to one side and then get on with people who are like-minded to actually deliver the outcome there will be time to actually go back to that contract if required, but you sure as heck have got to know what it is that you're paying your money to get. And sure as heck got to know when the trade-offs start occurring because real people are trying to deliver real things with real commitment and real motivation under real pressures. What you are actually doing to give some away, knowing that actually you're going to get something back. So increasingly, uh, we are generating within the DNS as a piece of good practice small booklets that actually summarise what can be a two-inch thick contract down to about 20 pages. And actually, this is, these are the bits you really need to know something about. And everybody is getting one, as it were, so that people understand precisely what the key performance indicators are in that contract so that they can... They know when it's not being delivered, and most importantly, know, as I say, and manage and are empowered at the right level to conduct the trade-offs. Governance is key. Uh, program boards now regularly are making tough decisions. Um, SDSR 2015 has provided the opportunities to grow capability, but as I said, it's catastrophic success. Uh, there are in-year challenges and there's sure as future ones. Um, 
uh, a large number of people were locked in a room at High Wycombe last Thursday for a decision conference. Uh, I think I hear it went for about 13 hours. Uh, DN DNS was fully represented in that uh, and indeed had gone in a very transparent way to providing a lot of the data that was needed to support that decision conference so that, that every single good idea or bad idea could in fact be stacked and prioritised um, and is now going to be discussed at the Air Force Board uh, this Friday uh, with some real tough decisions needing to be made. Tony Douglas, those of you who know him, uh, our new CEO at the DNS as of December last year, so not so new as it were, um, has in fact uh, indicated his intent through six priorities. And one of those priorities is to putting the S back into DNS. Um, and that means, again, focusing on actually where we are spending more money and where we are uh, a little delinquent at times. It's very easy to, to actually see what's going on with regard to managing business cases, getting them through the approval process, getting them onto contract and seeing those really bright, shiny technology um, outputs that we all, you know, that motivate us all. The reality is the hard work is done by some bloke and woman in a hangar with a spanner in the hand. Um, or increasingly actually staring at a computer actually uh, and cutting software. Setting requirements uh, early on, um, again focusing on teamwork uh, and that would be the teamwork not only between us and as the DNS and our customers, uh, the, the front line, but very much with industry. Um, it got to be teamwork, we've got to know each other, uh, we've got to understand what actually makes us both tick. Transparency is another word that I have been employing largely at DNS uh, against the problems that we've got, and it's an in-year problem in terms of budget, and bits of it will drift into next year, but again, recognising that nine brand new PHs don't come for free, uh, that we've actually got to make up some efficiencies to be able to add to this capability uh, shopping list, but the reality is that we've really got to look in every single corner and the teams are being as transparent as they possibly can and one day we, we aspire to earn their trust. So trust is not a given, it's something you've got to work for. And the coherence in the deployed space, uh, again I've already alluded to the fact of where that can go wrong, is very honestly with the Royal Navy. Uh, in simple terms they I think have got the wrong support solution, they have contracted out too much and are now suffering with people who are at sea or in their deployed space, which of course can be three feet off the jetty in the channel, um, who don't actually know how to fix all of the kit that's on the ship. And the communication channels, that bandwidth problem still exists when you're at sea. Um, you can't always get uh, somebody to help you. And this is something, as I say, we are running a rule over again all of our contracts with regard to the number of people that have exposure to the depth environment to ensure that in the deployed space we can guarantee that people in harm's way are able to fix the kit that they're there for in the first place. And again, with regard to um, the, a greater emphasis on safety, uh, so again with greater transparency, um, looking at what the requirements are, we are seeing more safety modifications going through with a much higher priority again with a very clear mandate for that to occur and that is a good thing. 
So what are we doing in terms of con continuing efficiencies realised in support? Uh, that is but a snapshot of some of the contracts that have been let in the last year or so, and the savings that we are continuing to deliver by working ever more closely with our industry partners. Uh, I give a mix of helicopters and fixed wing. Helicopters is where I've been personally involved in the last 15 or 15 of the last um, 19 months. And the one that I saw and was proud to see over the line was the Merlin IOS arrangement, where again the savings uh, were hugely significant. And again, um, are times tough? Yes. Is the level of support that we require being delivered? Absolutely. And so we know it comes all the way back to that chart at the beginning. 87% of the savings come from working more collaboratively with industry. So why would you not continue to do that? And what this shows is we are. Uh, Simon, thank you. Uh, you did all the hard work along with people uh, from BAS. Um, MOD's new landmark, uh, most innovative contract, uh, was signed at the end of uh, July. Uh, really innovative, and as far as the overall contract is worth uh, £2.142 billion. Pounds. Uh, the really smart thing is that the arrangement with Treasury has in fact ring-fenced that amount of money. Now, the incentive now is to deliver 10 years' worth of support for Typhoon, recognising we're still they're still being delivered, so the fleet is still getting bigger, um, at around £500 million less than that. And with that money, that will be ploughed immediately back into capability enhancements for the Typhoon. Now, that is really incentivising and motivating everybody engaged in it. And again, could not be done if it were not for the level of um, well, the relationship and the level of trust that, has, that is being generated between the MOD and, in this instance, BAE Systems. But I think this, this contract um, and arrangement will, I am certain, uh, be utilised again in the future. And just, I mean, Future Support Operating Model was a lovely acronym to get it going, FSOM. Uh, the overall project to which we're now all putting our shoulder to the wheel is now called Titan, uh, Typhoon Total Availability Enterprise. It's a bit of a cheat on the E and the N. Uh, but again, <laughs> even then, when we get to this, the best, as it were, and the most coherent that we would like to see, we still have to call it something different. But there we go. So my final slide, uh, before uh, happily taking any questions. Though, in fact, from looking at the audience, I think I may divert them to better experts than I. Um, so what are we doing? What have we got to do in the future? Uh, we have absolutely got to get better at codifying the good practice. And I mean inter-organisationally, because if indeed we think that we have got the monopoly and all the good ideas in air, then we're eluding ourselves. Because there are some pretty smart contracts coming along in land actually, from which we can learn, and also we should be learning lessons from our maritime colleagues as well, um, but most importantly, adopting good practice. And some of the organisational transformational activity that we're undertaking in the DNS is, is forcing us into doing this. So the very fact that we will have people now brigaded into functions, your home, as it were, is an engineering home, means that you'll be working alongside people who actually are employed elsewhere in the organisation and indeed you will be learning lessons from them 
and hopefully then applying it to the project or programme that you are engaged in uh, for that week, month, year, more often than not, several years. Because the projects and programmes that we are engaged in, as all of you know, are long-term um, enterprises. I think that DNS and industry will continue working together. Uh, the reality is we don't have a choice. Uh, but the trust achieved through shared values uh, no longer can it be a list of what we want and what industry wants. It has to be the same list. Uh, we have to understand that the company is only there to make a profit in terms of sustained profit for the shareholder and not think that's a bad thing if, in fact, there are like people, members of the uniform working under the command and control of industry in a debt support hub. Um, that's no big deal. We've been doing it now for years and people are quite used to it. Again, it was quite bloody, literally bloody to start with, but it is not the case anymore. I've already mentioned the very fact that having a contract means that as many people as possible have got to actually read it, understand it and live it. And so to have clear contracted responsibilities, very clear, I do this, you do that, but sadly I still have to bring so much government furnished equipment to the party that often I am seen as a delinquent in this arrangement. However, that is indeed what we've got to do. And the open communications, and for that I mean the transparency, I mean having a really big stand-up argument toe-to-toe -to -toe with those people who you work with and will work with again tomorrow. Because sometimes, or not sometimes, almost every day, these arrangements are flipping hard work. I hardly need to tell you that, people in this audience. This is hard work. It's worth doing. Therefore, open communications. Good arguments, good points of view. Make a decision. Move on. For as much as, indeed, I would crave coherence of commonality and similarity in the way we go about things, the reality is to be too coherent stifles innovation. Um, somewhere in there, there's a, there's a happy equilibrium. I personally have not yet found it, uh, and I look forward to anybody who can help me with that. Um, we are buying lots of F-35s. Uh, we are buying a number of aircraft types. The uh, P-8 is one. Uh, from the United States. Um, we are buying some of those through foreign military sales, where indeed once you're in, you're kind of in. And indeed what we have got to do and are doing and thinking hard about is how to do intelligent support independently of the country from where we have potentially bought that and need to remain alongside. That is going to be a continual um, challenge for us to be able to influence the support arrangements as fully as we would like in the future. And I talked about the focused orb, of course, has always got to be on the deployed space. Uh, we've got to remain as flexible as we can. Uh, resources likely to always need further rebalancing. Things happen, we live in a, in a real external world. And if ever no one knew, honestly, back in 2003 when we embarked upon this, I would honestly tell you there never really was a plan B. Um, and so have we had to make it work? Yes. It's to the credit of many of you in this room and many thousands of people who we call friends and colleagues that the arrangements have worked. We still have a hugely capable front line. And in the way uh, you know, we get continually 
beaten up by people wanting to come and see what it is that we've done. And for as much as the Americans can be difficult, and they can, with foreign military sales, we've got a party of five congressmen coming to the DNS in the middle of October, and the thing they wanted to hear about was contracting for availability. Now, I don't expect, in all fairness, five congressmen hearing a couple of days' worth of it is going to go back and change the world. But hopefully, who knows, it might make a difference. So I'm very happy to hear any of your reflections on what it is that I have said, which I fully admit is a trip through memory lane in part, but I genuinely think that the lessons that we have learned together over the last 13 years are worth reflecting on because I think those are they that are actually going to see us through in the next few challenging years and into the future. Thank you very much indeed. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.